you, you know, if you think about it, salespeople, the biggest thing that salespeople are fighting yesterday and today is inertia. And so you need to have the ability to inspire people to change. It just can't in any way feel manipulative. Welcome to Decision Point, a podcast about mental toughness and overcoming adversity in sales. I'm Brad Seaman. Hey, this is Brad Seaman with Monster Connect, also the the co-host of Decision Point. I'm excited to get into the second leg of our series. We are going to shift the podcast just a little bit off of the mental toughness, the the mental piece of mental toughness, and we're going to shift more to the adversity side of overcoming the challenges that exist in sales. And we're going to start that out. Um, We're going to transfer to a weekly episode versus a bi-weekly episode. And we are going to start focusing on things that help you sell more effectively. So this week, we've got Bob Kreisberg on. And if you're a sales manager, a sales leader, you're going to be excited to hear Bob because Bob's going to talk about how the sales cycle has changed over the last 20 years and how that's affected the type of salespeople and type of salesperson that's needed in the sale. And he's going to dive deep and he's going to talk about the, the things that you need to be looking for and what the makeup is and the psychology. So I'm excited to have Bob on. So let's get it started. I'm here with Bob Kreisberg, and he's the president of Opus Productivity Solutions. And he works specifically with sales teams to help them choose the right people that need to be on the bus and then help them identify and figure out what the ideal salesperson looks like for them. So, Bob, is that a good uh, good introduction? Uh, absolutely. You know, those are definitely the key things that our clients look for um, out of uh, the services that we are providing to them. So over your time doing this, how have you seen sales change? I mean, maybe in the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. You know, the key difference that we see today Uh, And it's a huge difference. And if you don't pay attention to it, you're making a a huge mistake is how much more data is available to the buyer. Um, You know, if I go all the way back to when we were selling, you know, when we were selling online services and taking businesses that were primarily going from, you know, either manual or disparate technology, you know, they might have had a bookkeeping machine and a billing machine and using ADP for payroll and automating that business, they did not have outside resources. There wasn't any place they could go and read about different systems, do comparisons. You know, there was no internet. And so um, the buyer's information was really coming from the seller. Um, And that meant sellers could really embellish and represent the product to be whatever it was that they thought it needed to be to get the business. And and I would say people could get away with it. That didn't mean that they ended up with successful implementations or happy customers, but the buying process was completely different because you as a seller knew that they didn't have any other source of information other than what you were providing them. Well, over time, 
you know, that changed slowly and then it changed more and more dramatically so that literally anything that you want to buy today, your sources of information are dramatically different than hearing what the salesperson has to say. You know, whether it's a very simple product, you know, as simple as looking for, um, you know, an attachment microphone for an iPhone or an iPad, <laughs> we're not we're not reaching out to a salesperson to be told you know what's right or what's wrong. We're doing the research, even with more expensive things, be it a you know being you know a, a digital camera or a car or software products and software solutions. So whatever the case may be, having the the, the buyer having um, resources to pr- provide them with that information and that data dramatically changed the nature of what the buyer was looking for to get from the salesperson. And and as that changed, really the nature of the seller needed to be able to make a move, you know, in that direction as well. So what kind of buyer, so 20 years ago, what did the profile look like of a successful salesperson versus what the profile might look like today? So I think you could go back 120 years when John Patterson was building out his sales team at NCR way back when, and extroversion would have been a high trait. <laughs> so, so, you know, when you look at the four cornerstone behavioral traits that get measured um, in a personality, um, you know, the, 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 the dominance trait, which is the ability to kind of control the selling situation, um, that definitely was a high trait if you go back to when the buyer did not have a lot of other information because the high dominant salesperson, they're very, very hard to say no to. So absent the buyer having a whole lot of other information, that high dominant salesperson really had a competitive edge because they got a lot of business done when the buyer had no idea what they were buying. So the extroversion trait has very much stayed the same, but you don't see nearly that level of dominance in today's salesperson because when the, when the buyer already knows what they need to know, that higher dominance person where you do run the risk of them perhaps embellishing beyond what is reality, you run the risk with that personality that they may be in a situation where the buyer doesn't feel that they can trust the information as much. So the, the older sales model just like today's model, would certainly feature higher extroversion because, let's face it, in a selling situation, you still need to have the ability to inspire people to change. You you know, if you think about it, salespeople, the biggest thing that salespeople are fighting yesterday and today is inertia. And so you need to have the ability to inspire people to change. It just can't in any way feel manipulative. It's much more important that today's salesperson is facilitating a buying process. 
the old adage, people love to buy but hate to be sold. Mm -hmm. And so with that, the extroversion trait is probably going to be a higher trait than the dominance trait was. And patience plays into that as well, because when you're not the sole source of information from your, you know, from to the buyer, you need to respect the fact that they are going to look for other resources to get the information. And so, um, you know, if you're um, overly impatient with a, with a buyer in that situation, you're really showing a lack of respect. So, so those are the traits that are moving more than, you know, more than others. And by the way, just to round out, you know, the behavioral traits, you know, the last trait that you certainly see is, uh, is, is the process oriented trait or what's called the conformity trait. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't think the conformity trait has changed dramatically from a sales standpoint but it has changed dramatically in how a salesperson can fit within a sales department and a sales organization. I mean, for instance, the, the call that I was on just before we're, you know, we're recording this podcast is with a salesperson uh, that, that works for a software company and she happens to be out of Toronto. And she made the comment that if you did everything that the company was looking for you to do in terms of providing input into Salesforce, you know, which is the sales automation tool that they use, she said she could spend 50% of her week providing information into Salesforce. Now, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but we do know that sales automation has changed the job of the salesperson. Um, and salespeople need to be able to adapt to that world because it is so common that whatever position you're going to have in sales, you need to be prepared to deal with the, you know, the process orientation to maintain your data into some, some sort of a Salesforce automation type of a tool, whether it's Salesforce or anything else that's going to be out there. Yeah, that's an interesting concept or thought. Technology has changed, not just the fact that the buyer has more information, the seller has more information and more and more to do. And that is obviously going to change the type of person that you might be able to put in that role, you know, needing to have that high, uh, you know, needing to be able to fill out information. Right. I, I think that's very important. I also think that, um, th th and again, certainly it depends on the selling environment, but I think that the, that the salesperson, um, if they're genuinely going to be successful, they need to fill in the gap of not necessarily what the product does, but, but what the value of what the product does and what that means you know, to the, to the buyer. Um, the, the buyer can figure out what their business is. The buyer can figure out better than they ever could before what the product is. But how do you marry those two pieces? 
And what level of confidence do you have on any kind of an implementation? And who are you going to look for to be able to provide that confidence? Because that salesperson, at least during the selling process, they are the link between you know the vendor and the and and the customer and um and the vendor the, the customer wants to have the confidence that they know where they're going to be able to go to be able to get things resolved and having that you know having a salesperson that can represent that um is very important but also that's dependent on how the organization is structured on the after the sale standpoint. Uh, you know, different organizations now have customer success teams. And so if you're working in an organization where there is a customer success team, you know, then you can have a salesperson that doesn't need to kind of be representing, you know, I'm going to be your link to the future. And that ch- that changes the nature of what the salesperson is going to look like and you know, and what the buyer should be expecting from their relationship on the sales side. Now that's ch- that's changed in itself, right? I mean, th- twenty years ago, you didn't have client support teams like you have today. No, I th- I think that organizations have figured out over time, and it's ta- it's taken time. Um, you know that if if you look at all of the different roles that you ask a sale a sales person to wear, you know, how many different hats do you want them to wear? You know, if you start them, you know, from cradle to grave, you know, the cradle being picking up the phone and saying, hello, my name is, or literally going out there and knocking on doors to um, needs analysis and understanding what needs to be done to then presentation and getting, you know, C-level executives to buy on and then implementation, customer support, what they what they have found is it's really the rare bird who can be good at everything. And so depending on how an organization is utilizing their sales team, then they can look at like, what's the most important person, you know, what's the most important piece that the salesperson is bringing to the table and align the personality with what that most important piece is. So, so let me, let me give you, try to give you a clear example for that. With an organization that really has um, a, a position where the salesperson is not responsible for that lead generation. That lead generation is happening in some other way. Um, that allows for that salesperson to have a greater level of um, uh, of dominance because because that that lead generation side to a high dominance person is really difficult for them to deal with. But if you take that away, then the higher dominance person can be more comfortable in that type of a selling environment. Um, and if you take away the customer service piece, then you don't need, you know, you don't need quite as much either patience or process orientation. So if you take away the lead gen part and you take away some of that aftercare, then you can have a more dynamic and I would suggest a more aggressive 
sales style, which everybody has found is more effective in ultimately getting new name business done. And we haven't talked about this yet on this call, but clearly there's a dramatic difference in the nature of your hunter salesperson versus your farmer salesperson. Um, and, and hunting for most companies is the hardest part of the sales role to fill. Almost every sales manager that I've ever talked to, you know, will say, oh man, I got all the farmers I ever need. I need some more hunters. Yet why is that? Why, why is it so hard to find hunting oriented salespeople? Well, first of all, <laughs> the, the the number of people in the population that bring the hunter nature is so much smaller than the than the number of people in the population that bring the farmer nature. When you, when you look at the statistical analysis, um, you, you've got less than half of the people bring that assertive behavioral style to the table than people that are more comfortable as farmers. So there are just fewer candidates that are going to be able to fill that role. Um, and then with that, you, you, it, it just can't be, uh, you know, it can't be the more aggressive style that doesn't have any control over who they are. So you, you need, you know, to pardon the expression, you kind of need the wolf in sheep's clothes. So you need that aggressive personality with the knowledge that they know how to, how to modify that to be able to get things done, but not, you know, not irritate the, the hell out of not only the people they're selling, but the people on the inside of the company. So it's, it's more that you're looking for the thoroughbreds and getting them to fit within your organization and creating an environment in your organization that really allows those people to flourish. And that has to do with compensation and all other aspects of, you know, how you build the environment around that hunter to be successful. Do you find that there's a lot of hunters in non-sales roles and that's a deterrent to a sales organization finding a good salesperson because they're naturally looking for somebody who sold something? Well, you, you know, it's so interesting. The, the very first application of the profiling tool, which we did in Chicago, was when we were trying to sell accounting software. So we're selling classic accounting systems and somebody had the brilliant idea. Well, if you want to sell accounting systems and accounting software, you want people with credibility. And so who's going to have credibility to sell accounting software? Ah, accountants. And so the initial play was, let's go see if we can find some accountants and have them sell accounting software. Well, as you might imagine, that was not terribly successful until we added the next piece, which was... We need to find accountants that are unhappy <laughs> being accountants. Why are they unhappy being accountants? Because it doesn't really suit their personalities. So we, we were then built pipeline building for, for candidates looking for accountants, but we were doing personality assessments to look for those 
few, you know, they were few and far between, but we were looking for those hunter profiles that were making their unhappy living being accountants and converting them over to sell accounting software. And let me tell you, that absolutely worked. We found some killer salespeople and they were so much happier. You know, they were saying, man, this is exactly what I want to be doing. I love to talk about accounting. I love to solve problems. I love to win. And, you know, this job allows me to do all of those things. So, yeah, I think that when when you're really looking to be able to fill that position, the behavioral nature, which you can't change. And let's face it, people people are who they are. And that happens at a really, really early age. I mean, I'm not saying that we can't adapt our personality in certain situations to accommodate the short-term needs, but we pretty much, we are the person that we are. So finding that right dynamic in the personality and then creating a work environment that allows that person to flourish is the right way to go. So give me an example of something a sales an, or an organization would would or could potentially do to make it hard on a sales rep. <laughs> well, there are a million things that companies can do to make it hard on a sales rep. Um Probably the most important one is that they don't provide good service to the client base, because in today's world, if your customers are not happy, you can't keep that a secret. I mean, you just can't keep that a secret. And Brad, if I go back way, way, way back when, when I was selling the online service, um, um, you know, in all of Manhattan, all I really needed was three happy clients. If I had three happy clients, if I could take a prospect, jump in a cab, you know, go to, you know, go to West 34th Street, take them into a client and the client says, oh, hi, Bob. Oh, yeah, no, we love these guys. And then take them up to Madison Avenue and take them to another client. They go, hey, yeah, no, Bob, great. To oh, yeah, no, we love these guys. If I had three happy clients, I could sell anything. Um, it didn't matter that I had 38 clients that hated us. No, the prospect wouldn't know that at the time. People know now, and you just can't keep that. So companies that don't understand how important it is to have really happy customers. If you don't have happy customers, you're really making it difficult on your salesperson. So that's number one. Number two is that you've got equitable pricing. Um, it, look, I think it's a hell of a lot easier to sell a high-end product at a premium price than it is to sell a crappy product at a low price. I'd always rather justify, you know, I'd rather sell the $80 cotton shirt than the $30 cotton shirt because there's even a perceived value in buying something more expensive than, than somebody else's product, but that needs to be within the realm of reality. So if pricing isn't reality, that's a big problem. And then lastly is 
the work environment that they're that they're operating in. You know, is it realistic from an expectation standpoint? I mean, are quota expectations realistic? Are they based on what a person can actually do, or their quota? You know, are their quotas built on what revenue goals the company has? You know, okay, well we're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna double our revenue in this next year. Okay, so what are we gonna do with sales quotas? Oh, well, let's double the quotas. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you you wonder why. Fewer salespeople in today's world are hitting their numbers versus what they were at some point. It's because a lot of times those quotas are being set based on meeting the needs of the private equity organization or the hedge fund or the public because it's a publicly held company. And so quotas are not set based on reality. Quotas are set on financial goals without really looking at what do we need to do as a company to allow the salesperson to do that? Which has to be super expensive if you just start kind of pontificating and thinking about the, the, the process here is that you see these sales guys move around from job to job to get pay bumps because the company will pay you more coming in than they'll pay you if you've been there at in a lot of cases than if you've been there at the organization because there's this perceived need that they have. And you see all this movement where people will be at a job for one or two years, then they move to a, they move to another job, which is either one of two things: either a they can't cut it and they're getting let go, or b they're trying to move their base um, up by hopping job to job. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's absolutely true. And uh, and and understand for the great majority of salespeople, if they are not hitting their numbers, um, whether or not that number is realistic or not. The nature of most salespeople, I mean, you have to understand, when you look at the personality nature of salespeople going all the way back 120 years ago to John Patterson, they're high extroverts for the most part. And high extroverts don't want to disappoint people. And so, you know, if you, you know, you know that, you know, last year you did 800,000, you know, on a $750,000 quota. So, you know, you were 108% a quota and everybody was happy. You know, now your quota is a million seven um, and you're going to do 900,000. Th th there's no sense of satisfaction. You know, you feel like a failure. And so setting people up in sales to not be able to hit their numbers is a huge morale problem and a huge reason why people will leave a job because they don't want to feel like a failure. You, you know, we've been covering the last six episodes, mental toughness, what it takes to be mentally tough. Um, from a personality perspective, my question to you is, are there certain personalities in your opinion that are more inept or more adapted to being um, mentally tough than others. So when you go and you look at the profiles and you, and you sort of define, you know, mentally tough as the ability to move on from one thing to another and be resilient. Do you think there's certain personalities that are more have a bend towards that than others? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, and so, um, again, we talk we talk about so much of sales personalities are wrapped around, you know, extroversion as being a high trait. 
And the extroversion um, um, certainly gets people to be looking inwardly. Um, you know, what do people think of me? Do they think I'm good? Do they think I'm bad? Um, and, and the high extrovert left to its own device becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, meaning, hey, when things are going great, okay, everything's great. And then when things are not, you know, then they get down on themselves. So it really is a complementary behavioral style, which gets you to that mental toughness. It's not just the extroversion. In fact, extroversion can work against that because people are so self-reflective. And so you will see it come out in different ways. If dominance is paired with extroversion, and it often is in top performing salespeople, yeah, you know, they're still going to ride a little bit of an emotional roller coaster, but that dominance gives them that competitive edge that says, I'm, I'm going to win. I, I'm going to I'm going to do what I need to do. I am going to win. And that will provide them that level of mental toughness. But that's not the only way to get there. You can get somebody that's process oriented. So the, you know, the higher extrovert and the higher conformity personality, they don't necessarily have that same you know, intense competitive drive, but they have a confidence that if they do the right things, well, I can hear my first sales manager saying to me, you know, focus on the funnel, focus on the funnel, do the right things, things will come out the other end. That will also give you that toughness. You're going to say, yeah, I know I'm not there yet, but I am doing the right things. The key thing for the manager to understand is where that salesperson's coming from so they can harness that toughness. Because it may be coming from the competitive spirit. It may be coming from the process orientation. You want to be able to harness that because that allows that person to be tougher and you want to be taken away from that extroversion roller coaster. You want to be continuing to give that person that emotional support. Hey, you're a good person. You're, you're, you're good at what you're doing. Stay strong. Stay confident. I believe in you. Um, you know, very, very rarely, I call it the Billy Martin syndrome, and I know I'm dating myself, but, but the sales manager that takes that approach that says, you suck, show me that I'm wrong, <laughs> uh, really is running a huge risk versus saying, I believe you're terrific. You know, you know let's, you're, we're going we're gonna to show the world how terrific you are. That's a much greater opportunity for success, even though that natural tendency might be, you know, I think that you're a miserable salesperson. But yeah, you go show me that I'm wrong. Show me that I'm wrong about you. I mean, does that work? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but... <laughs> All right. Well, I can't, you know, I'll, I'll probably plug this again in the outro, but obviously I'm a big fan of you. You've saved me. Uh, a, you've helped me hire a couple of really key people uh, to the company. Also saved me on some, on some bad hires. And I refer you, obviously, you know, anytime I get a chance to talk, uh, to plug you, I do, because I've got you hooked up with all my, all my friends. And um, Bob's <laughs> a great guy. He does great work and he's obviously very, very knowledgeable. So, 
Um, I appreciate you being on here today, Bob, and uh, it was a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Brad. I want to give a shout out to Bob Kreisberg for being on the show with Opus Productivity. Thanks again, Bob. Great show. Had some great takeaways. Uh, I think the one thing that I took away that was the most impactful is that some salespeople aren't in sales roles. And so some of the best guys that are out there that are selling are in roles that aren't currently sales roles. And that you need to be out there looking at some of those kind of niche markets that you can find someone in. Excited to have you guys on next week. In the meantime, if you want to go to monsterconnect.com slash podcast, you can download all the other episodes. And we look forward to seeing you guys next week. 